saturations going. Namam Vishnupadaya Krishna Prashtaya Bhutale Srimate Bhakti Vedanta Saminiti Namine Namaste Sarasvati Deve Gauravani Pracharine Nirvishesha Shunyavadi Pasachade Satarine Shri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhunityananda Shri Advaita Gadarha Shivasari Gauravakta Vrinda Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Jai Shri Prabhupada Ki Jai. have a God brother. Artisarati Swami Goswami, I don't know. And he uh, he serves in South Africa. He's my spiritual master. And he's your spiritual master. Uh, and uh, he uh, Every day he offers prayers to the members of the Parampara and then to like a whole list of God brothers and God sisters uh, praying to them for their mercy and blessings. saying that because Brahmananda Prabhu is one of the people who he uh, he prays to. NYU, New York University. And the correction that uh, this isn't written by Brahmananda Prabhu, it's written by Satyaraj Prabhu from interviews uh, with uh, Brahmananda and other things that he'd uh, said. This was a time of rapid growth for Bruce. He was now on his own, attending New York University, and he had the ship experience under his belt, particularly his trip to India. Because of this, he considered himself somewhat worldly. He would show slides of India to his friends during his junior year at college, and they would see how the subcontinent and its mystique had taken over his thoughts. At the same time, of course, he found himself in the throes of the era's burgeoning hippiedom, as was the case for his vast majority of friends as well. It was, after all, the mid-1960s, and diverse worlds famously collided in the village where Bruce would spend time with hipster acquaintances. Although attending the New York University campus in the Bronx, he would commute to Lower Manhattan to engage his youthful passions. His obsession with all things Indian led to a paper on Gandhi and another on Tagore. It also led to his first reading of the Bhagavad Gita, too. 
specifically for a course on philosophy and religion. It also led to his first reading of the Bhagavad Gita. Then why do you need the two? It also already does. Specifically for a course on philosophy and religion. The final examination at the end of the semester was oral, and, and he had to be present. Uh, the entire gamut of his findings present the entire gamut of his findings on India before the class. Because he focused on Hinduism and the Gita, and because India was his first love, the talk garnered positive results. Everyone, including the professor, applauded, saying it was the best exposition on the subject they had ever heard. Bruce knew the truth, though his knowledge of the Gita and its sacred land was minimal. He had read some books and visited in India for a short time, not enough to secure any real information. But compared to what the others knew, he was an expert. <laughs> Bruce remembers his final month at NYU. He needed six credits to graduate. To make this happen, he attended summer classes at the school's Washington Square campus, downtown in the village. There, he took a course called Oriental Literature, which included readings on the Buddha, the Tao Te Ching, and the Bhagavad Gita. During this period, he also encountered a monk named Swami Nikilananda, who had considerable influence on him. His recollection is vivid. Uh, first person. Towards the end of my time in NYU, at NYU, I did my paper on the Bhagavad Gita, Aurobindo's version. Around that time, too, I would go with my roommates to see different yogis in the area. To some degree, this quenched my thirst for stuff related to India. It was in the context that we somehow happened to be on the Ram Krishna mission, happened upon the Ram Krishna mission, and I met Swami Nikilananda. In 1933, he had founded the Ram Krishna Vivekananda Center of New York and he stayed there as its president until he died in 1973. So this was the mid-1960s, and he was still there. He was a scholar, a translator, and so on, with editions of the Upanishads, the Gita, and other books as well. He was also a brilliant orator, so for a time I thought I might become his disciple. Later on, he met Prabhupada, but that's another story. He met Prabhupada or I met Prabhupada? In any case, in July 1966, just before I met Srila Prabhupada, I said to Nikolananda, I want to become your student. So he responded, okay, but I'm going on summer vacation now to St. Lawrence. We have an island there. When I come back to New York in September, you can become my disciple at that time. I was persistent, though, pushing him. Why don't you let me go with you? But he said, no, you won't like it there. Our main audiences consist of old ladies. That's our congregation. I guess I was amongst the first young hipsters to show appreciation for what he was doing. The rest were older, conservative people, and they were very westernized, as we'll see, in Western dress, 
and his center had an organ in a church-like atmosphere with pews. They sang hymns and such. The only Indian thing there was the incense and his speeches. We used to travel uptown to see him. One day I remember him asking me if I had a girlfriend, and uh, at the time I did. So when I responded in the affirmative, he said, if you want to become my student, you either have to marry her or end a relationship. I listened to him. It wasn't a serious relationship anyway, so I ended it. A couple of months later, after meeting Srila Prabhupada, I told him about this exchange, and he liked it because Nikolananda was taking a hard stance in terms of sexual impropriety. Prabhupada said, oh, then he is good. Nikolananda had a disciple whose name I forget. And uh, they had a place in, uh, they had a place, I don't know whether that's what this refers to, the St. Lawrence, but they had a place in the Laurentians uh, in, uh, uh, up from Montreal. And once we got an invitation in 73, uh, and uh, at that time, Ridanana Marsh happened to be there, actually came to visit Montreal. And so uh, we, went, uh, we went with him up, uh, up to the place. Uh, we ended up walking out because uh, uh, the guru was uh, speaking my bad philosophy and you know we were very if you listen to my bad philosophy you're going to fall down so we got to go <laughs> <laughs> of course in terms of Prab uh, now this is back to third person of course in terms of Prabhupada's overall approval Swami Nikolananda would not have fared well his conservative sexual mores notwithstanding. As it turns out, Nikolananda's impersonalistic notions of the Godhead and his polytheistic uh, Hinduism ran counter to Vaishnav teachings, and Prabhupada had come west to set the record straight. But Bruce didn't know this at the time. To him, Nikolananda was an Indian Swami, and he represented the wisdom of the East, plain and simple. Preparing the way. As fate would have it, soon after these exchanges with the uptown Nikolananda, Bruce would meet Srila Prabhupada, who at the time was initiating his movement in Lower Manhattan and was simply known as Swamiji. Michael Green, who had shared with Bruce not only his somewhat bohemian lifestyle, but also an apartment near NYU, served as the catalyst. Some years later, Green went on to become a mildly, a, a mildly well-known counterculture icon, an author and artist with ties to Timothy Leary and the popularization of LSD. But in the present context, his story unfolds as the person who recommended that Bruce go to see Swamiji. According to Michael, it happened as follows. This is first person. 
One day I was wandering the East Village and saw a storefront called Matchless Gifts. Inside, I heard this musical ching, 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 ching. Something was happening. I went in and saw a group of young people like myself sitting on the floor and starting to chant along with the chinging of little cymbals. Leading the scene was what appeared to be a real live guru. Gurus and mysticism and enlightenment had just started entering the 60s cultural radar, so this was definitely a spiritual connection of some sort. I went in and joined the chanting. It was all very cosmic. There was a paradigm shift going on at that time in my life and in the Western world in general. And the Swami, who seemed like he had just stepped off the ship from India, which, <laughs> which was, was in the right place at the right time. With the chanting, with the dancing, with the big free Sunday love feasts, Krishna consciousness was instantly part of the counterculture. He had intuitively uh, tuned in this direction with the incense and the oming and Aldous Huxley, but here apparently was direct connections. Bhaktivedanta clearly had gravitas and devotion. It was hard not to get caught up in what he was offering. It seemed to be an important piece of the puzzle and fit right in with what we were all looking for. For me, and I think for most, it was but one piece of the puzzle. By this time, Bruce was living on the Lower East Side, on uh, Sixth Street, I believe. He had relocated down there to finish up with NYU, certain credits he needed to complete his stint there. Previously, he and I and another fellow had shared an apartment in the Bronx to be near the uptown campus where we were all students. We maintained the friendship throughout those years, indulging the drugs of the time and visiting yoga ashrams and such, like Ramakrishna Mission. In any case, I went down to Bruce's apartment and told him about the Swami and the storefront. I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I did suggest that he go and see what it was all about, especially since I had seen his hero, Allen Ginsberg, there. In the interim, I would visit the little storefront temple whenever I had the chance, either for chanting or to partake of a vegetarian feast or whatever happened to be happening there on any given day. I think something inside of me was attracted to the ascetic life. Once I brought Swamiji an offering, a picture of Krishna that I had drawn uh, with a uh, ballpoint on notebook paper. I thought it was pretty cool with a hint of the psychedelic, psychedelic curlicues that signaled the opening of the doors of perception. Definitely a product of the era. He graciously accepted it somewhat apprehensively, uh, no, somewhat appreciatively, very small print, but remarked a word of caution about young people in America taking drugs. It was definitely a uh, perceptive comment. On another occasion, I noticed that the devotees at the storefront seemed to be struggling financially, so I took my last 20 and bought a huge sack of rice 
donating it to the temple. I have to tell you, I always felt that this donation triggered a major karmic uh, transition in my life and my path started opening up in astonishing ways. Some weeks passed and when I saw Bruce again after a brief period of not seeing him for some time, I was amazed at how he had taken the Swami and Krishna to heart. It seems my description of the little storefront temple had inspired him to go down and see for himself. And it was exactly what he was looking for. Who would have guessed? It seems like he had found something he had lost several lifetimes back. He was clearly in his element. Third person. Michael's casual invitation was significant. Years later, Swamiji would ask Bruce how he came to Krishna consciousness. When Bruce recounted the story saying that a friend had told him about it and invited him to go down and to experience the chanting, Swamiji's eyes opened widely. Oh, me too. A friend invited me to come and meet my spiritual master. Swamiji was referring to the now famous story in Iskon of how Narendranath Malik, his childhood friend, had invited him to see Bhaktisanta Saraswati Thakur, who would eventually become his spiritual master. At first, Swamiji, then known by his birth name Abai, was skeptical. He had seen many pseudo-spiritualists and charlatan gurus in his time, but he went, he went down to the temple and found Saraswati Thakur to be different, to be genuine. Bruce would now have a similar experience. In fact, Krishna was be, uh, bringing Bruce to his doorstep. The boat trip to India and final college paper on the Bhagavad Gita were pivotal. The uptown Nikilananda's summer vacation and the stipulation that Bruce's final NYU credits needed to be secured at the downtown campus all brought him ever closer to Swamiji. As it turns out, Bruce was living within walking distance of 26 Second Avenue, the little storefront frequented by Michael and others. And on the appropriate day, Swamiji held public programs only on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. He casually walked over. But before launching into a discussion of Bruce's relationship with the Swami and the early days of ISKCON, New York, there was one other event in Bruce's early life that shows the direction God had planned for him, a hint of what was to come. His love for India and his collegiate study of the Indian philosophy had cultivated in him a desire to not only live like a practicing Hindu, but also to become a professor of Hinduism. Accordingly, he applied for a Fulbright scholarship, hoping to do a postgraduate work in India. This led him to the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, where he filled out application and examined their list of Indian universities with associate curricula. The choices were many, University of Bombay, Bombay, Delhi University, Bangalore University, Vishwabharat University, and so on. He had no idea of which one to choose. 
There was one name on this list, however, that immediately jumped out to him, Institute of Oriental Philosophy. Ruminating over the name of this institute in a list that included so many others, he felt certain that this was one, even if he had no sound reason for his conclusion. How was he to know that this particular postgraduate facility connected to the University of Agra was located in Brindavan, India, the land of Lord Krishna, and even more significantly that this was founded by Swamiji's godbrother, Swami B. H. Bon Maharaj. None of this would have meant anything to him at the time, and yet in retrospect, it becomes clear that through the Institute for Oriental Philosophy, Swamiji was calling out to him in yet another tangible way. Meeting Swamiji. Okay, now we start. Postgraduate studies soon fell to the wayside. Bruce would take the fateful walk to 26 Second Avenue, and all previous aspirations would know emendation. All long-head desires would become spiritualized. His life would change forever. As he made the journey from his apartment on the 6th Street and Avenue D to the 1st Street and 2nd Avenue, a short 10 blocks or so, it was as if he were breaking through the many layers of material existence to emerge in the spiritual world. He knew that something special was happening. But he didn't know exactly what it was, in his own words, first person. I felt as though I was leaving something behind and going to a new place. It's hard to explain, but I knew it was the beginning of an important transformation, a major turning point. I felt like when you go to the airport, if you're leaving a city and you're relocating, making a major move, and you think, I'm not going to see this place ever again, because you're getting on a plane and going to a totally different era, like leaving something behind, knowing that this is it, a totally new direction. That's the feeling I had after I met Swamiji. It was all of that and much more, too. Sorry, very attached to these twos. <laughs> Hare Krishna, everyone. Third person. On his way to the storefront, Bruce passed through a collection of neighborhoods that were somewhat downtrodden and grayish, if also colorful in a distinctly New York way. These uh, areas were populated not only by artists, musicians, students, and hippies, but by immigrants and others of low-income status. The cheap rents of the Lower East Side had been attracting such people since the 1950s, creating overall a sort of lower-class workers' dwelling, a generally poor and ethnically diverse part of the city. The region immediately around the storefront was mainly populated by Puerto Ricans and Dominican families, with their ever-present Pentecostal churches and local grocery stores 
but also nearby were the Irish, Italians, Poles, Ukrainians, Jews, and other ethnic groups. The seemingly endless streets of tenements and rubble-strewn parking lots made parts of the area look like a war zone. The environment was generally gritty and sometimes dangerous, with young kids on the street congregating, if not outwardly looking for trouble. Because of this, real estate brokers to attract renters popularized the specific locale just north of the storefront as the East Village, as opposed to merely the Lower East Side, distinguishing it as a new and desirable countercultural region. But it really wasn't much different, except for the presence of young hipsters and the stores and concert halls that accommodated them. Bruce had seen all this before. It was, after all, his neighborhood, but now it would take on new meaning. He saw it all as a, a positive harbinger of things to come. In fact, there was something uh, overwhelmingly positive in the air. He was about to meet Swamiji, which would change the course of his life. Everything seemed new, as he remembers it, first person. I was passing the Pentecostal storefront temples on the way there. They all had music, tambourines, and they were dancing, standing there, clapping and singing their songs. These were just storefronts with some benches and people getting together in glorification of God. It was like I was seeing these things for the first time. And then I reached the address, 26 Second Avenue. I walked over and I went in. It was August, very hot, although the sun was going down. It was early evening and everything seemed just right. There were a few boys in there, roughly my age, Umapati, Hygrieva, Kirtananda, and a few others. People I would get to know later, but at that time they were all strangers. In any case, I went in and I sat in the rear just to get a full view of what was going on. We were all sitting there on oriental rugs, I believe, and some were sitting on the bare floor. Then the side door opened, soon after arrived, and Swamiji walked in. There was a dais, a raised platform with a seat. But before he climbed up to sit on it, as he started to go towards it, he just stopped and turned around to look at who was in the audience. I swear he looked right at me. Our eyes locked. It was a pivotal moment in my life. I looked at him, and I'll never forget it. Just seeing him, it was Swamiji. It was him. It was really hot in there, so he was perspiring, but his body was glistening from the perspiration. He was golden, like a yellowish gold. I had never seen a real person with this color. His robes were beautiful and saffron, and his entire look was mystical and, 
for me, really alluring. But the main thing is that he was looking right at me, like a photograph was being taken, and it was very piercing look, as if he were looking into my soul. Later I found out that many devotees who saw him in person had had a similar experience, that when Swamiji looked in their direction, they felt like he was looking at them. But more than this, they felt like he was looking right into their heart, seeing everything, their entire sojourn in the material world, and their real identity, too. <laughs> His gaze was quite an amazing experience. But when I saw him that first time, I saw him as this Buddha image, and I could tell he was an enlightened being, a genuine guru. That was very important for me. I was interested in Eastern culture, and I had read about the Buddha on many occasions. I knew what he looked like from paintings, sculptures, and so on. To me, Swamiji looked just like him. I could see all the auspicious signs. There are 32 such signs mentioned in relation to the Buddha. The golden complexion, large lotus eyes, an elongated face and ears, front part of the body is like a lion, his head resembles a royal turban, and so on. It's not like I was an authority on this subject, but I had a general sense of it, and I could see that Swamiji partook of Buddha-like characteristics, so I thought, this is the Buddha. <laughs> this is not some Indian Swami but this is the Buddha himself. <laughs> uh, third person. This Buddha would soon teach Bruce true Dharma through Vaishnav thought and through his personal example. In fact, as inner transformation was already taking place. For his entire life, Bruce had experienced the insanity of the material world. As Ginsberg wrote in his classic Howl, I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving hysterically, hysterical, naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at uh, dawn, looking for an angry fix, angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of the night. Anyway, if you didn't understand that, it's okay. <laughs> That's why it was so popular. No one could figure out what it meant. These were the words of one of his favorite poets, and Bruce was well aware of the negative side of existence as expressed in Ginsberg's poetry. The coarse, heavy-handed truth of old age, disease, and death, the disappointments of unrequited love, mentors and would-be gurus who grew more and more disappointing as life moved forward. In fact, he had seen both pleasure and pain in the material world, but he wanted something more, something that transcended the tottering and mediocre duality of worldly existence. And Srila Prabhupada, the Swami, would indeed give that to him. He would show Bruce that while his peers and everyone around him were being Destroyed by madness, there was an alternate world of positivity, of love divine, of spiritual ambrosia.
Swamiji saved me from myself, he reflects. During high school and lasting through college, I developed an identity crisis. I realized that I had no idea of who or what I was, where I belonged, or where I wanted to go. I needed to find myself. I was alone in the world, isolated from everyone and everything. What was the purpose of life? What was the meaning of it all? I was tottering on, the ex on an existential precipice. As far as I could see, I had descended into the dark night of the soul. It was Swamiji who would bring me out of it. Who had similar type of existential crisis before Krishna consciousness? We have a lot of thinking people, positive people. Anju, did you have an existential crisis? <laughs> no, he's, he's fortunate, he already. <laughs> Chapter two, dancing for the Swami. After first arriving in America in September of 1965, Swamiji stayed at the Agarwal home in Butler, Pennsylvania. A sponsor from India had made arrangements for him to stay there. While in Butler, he closely observed his new Western audience and determined exactly how he would present his Vaishnav philosophy in the modern world. Relocating to New York, he was given space at an impersonalist yogi's ashram in uptown Manhattan. And after this, that same yogi would accommodate him in a small room on 72nd Street. He then moved in with a hippie acquaintance in the Bowery on the Lower East Side, for his small following were insisting that the young folks downtown would be receptive to his message. By March of 1966, he had gathered regular attendees, young people who liked to hear him speak philosophy and were also enamored by his kirtan, call and response chanting and the Hare Krishna Mahamantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. In the summer of that year, Swamiji's following grew and he officially incorporated the International Society for Krishna Consciousness, ISKCON. He also initiated almost two dozen students into his newly formed movement, Bruce among them. But this would come a couple of months down the line. Bruce's initial meeting with the Swami consisted only one month or so after the latter had moved into 26th Second Avenue, a storefront secured by several of the Swami's very first followers. Because of this, Bruce had the good fortune to spend those early days in an intimate environment with the Swami, who would stay there with his small group of followers for almost seven months. From July 1966 to January 1967, Bruce was there for most of that period. It was during this time, in fact, that the Swami gave uh, birth to the first Krishna Conscious Center in the West not a temple, but a center. He made this distinction clear to Bruce early on. Says Bruce, 
first person. Swamiji said that the movement didn't actually start in New York, but rather in Los Angeles. And the reason is interesting. In Los Angeles, the devotees initially got the La Cienga building, which was previously a church. It was a place where you could do, uh, do proper deity worship and hold all of the necessary festivals. But it was the deity worship aspect that Swamiji considered essential. This made it a temple. Prior to this, he didn't really consider that he had a movement with temples. He told me that personally. In New York, I was experimenting with how to give people the chanting. But in Los Angeles, I established a temple, a true temple. The New York storefront to them, to him, was more like a preaching center where he could test the waters. Once the movement got to Los Angeles, that's when he considered it a movement. Once the movement got to Los Angeles, it was a movement. Third person, the Hare Krishna Mahamantra. On Bruce's first visit to the Second Avenue Center, Swamiji led a kirtan, and then he lectured. After giving a brief overview of Vaishnav philosophy, there was more kirtan. Bruce was enamored. He had never been to a kirtan. He found it enlivening, and the philosophy made sense. Although he had read extensively about Eastern thought and mysticism, and had even tried silent meditation, he had never come across uh, literature on the power or significance of mantras. But he remembered seeing a pamphlet only several weeks earlier. First person. I had brief contact with the Hare Krishna mantra before meeting Srila Prabhupada or Swamiji, as he was called at the time. I went into a bookshop in the West Village, and there were these little leaflets. They advertised the Kirtan and Swamiji's program at 26-2nd Avenue, and it gave the mantra, but it said that one should practice transcendental sound vibration, and then it said, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. It interested me because I was studying the Bhagavad Gita at NYU, so I knew it. Uh, it had something to do with this, but I couldn't understand. What did it mean by practice transcendental sound vibration? How does one practice a sound vibration. It was totally alien to me. That is, until I went down to Swamiji's storefront. But the kirtan really impressed me. I didn't intellectualize it. I just got into the feeling of it, the intensity of the emotion. I really loved it right from the beginning. Third person. When Bruce walked out of the storefront that evening, he was still chanting. He couldn't get it out of his mind, not that he wanted to. In one sense, it reminded him of a jingle that kept resounding in his head. Popular jingles are designed to infiltrate the memory so that it repeatedly recurs, popping up, similar, uh, popping up seemingly out of nowhere. That you could. 
Songwriters and advertisers try to come up with jingles to capture a person's attention, usually to sell something, a product, if not an idea. These are also called earworms, especially when used in pop songs, because they burrow into your consciousness and you can't get them out. Um, Bruce was aware of the phenomenon, but was certain that this was different. It made him feel good, and he understood that. Unlike earworms in pop culture, this had tremendous spiritual depth. The first few days after his initial contact uh, with the, uh, the Swami moved slowly. It was summer and it was hot. He made it a habit to go to the park to recite the mantra, feeling the cool breeze of the fountain. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare. The outer world looked different, but he knew something was changing within as well. First person. My habit was to go over to Washington Square Park near the fountain and sit there because it's hot in New York especially in the apartments at that time. This is August, and uh, so you sit around there in the park and people play music, pass around marijuana, and so on. Normally, I would join in, but one day I'm sitting there and I'm chanting and somebody offers me a joint and I decline. That's when it became very clear to me. I'm doing something that's making me feel very happy. I don't need anything else. That being said, Bruce still had desires to go to India to study the tradition amongst lifelong adherents. But one of the first boys he met at 26nd Avenue, Wally, soon to be initiated as Umapari, dissuaded him. Why go to India when India has come to New York? In other words, everything they were looking for could be found in the Swami and his teachings. Bruce agreed. He was an authentic teacher, his traditional garb indicative of his traditional wisdom. A far cry from the westernized Swami Nikilananda, who wore a suit and uh, strange wing-tipped shoes, sitting very comfortably in lavishly furnished quarters. Whatever Bruce hoped to get in India, he could get on the Lower East Side, compliments of Swamiji. With this in mind, he started visiting the Swami more frequently. Aside from the few boys who seemed to live at the storefront, most would come three nights a week, especially for the kirtan and lectures. But Bruce now appeared at the storefront whenever he could, practically every day. Both the Swami and the mantra were fundamentally alluring. Swamiji translated the mantra like this, O Lord, O energy of the Lord, please engage me in your service. The chanting worked. 
coincidentally beat poet Allen Ginsberg, who, again, Bruce had admired for his countercultural views and his interests in India, had followed a similar trajectory. By a strange quirk of fate, Ginsberg had also gone to India just a few years prior to Bruce in late 1961. He had spent over a year there with Peter Orlovsky, traveling and looking for a spiritual teacher. In the interview, Ginsburg would later say in an interview, it was at the Magh Mela at Alabad that I heard a Nepalese lady singing Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, and the melody was so beautiful that it stuck in my head, and I took it home to America in 1963 and began singing at poetry parties. After poetry readings, with finger symbols first and later the harmonium. And that began to develop into singing and chanting as part of my poetry readings and led to a deepening of my voice, which slowly began to fill up my body and resonate in the breast area, you might say by hyperbole, the heart chakra, so that I could talk from there. And that reminded me of the voice of Blake that I had heard as if my youthful apprehensions of that vo uh, voice was a latent resonance of my mature voice. Of course, his, his commitment would never match the, that exhibited by Bruce, but his love for the Hare Krishna Mahamantra is a matter of public record. In the years to come, particularly in 68-69, Ginsburg became peripherally involved with Swamiji's movement, both as a friend and as a supporter. Now we're coming to basic knowledge and active service. And that is for Friday, because today is Wednesday. And, and I'm going to use a magnifier to read, because uh, very, very small print. So, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Hare Krishna. Jai Srila Prabhupada Ki Jai. Ravananda Swami Ki Jai. I don't have any prasadam to pass.